and welcome to another cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire one chapter. I'm your host Jeff, better known as Benedict Fish, and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 145th episode of the Not a Cast, titled "The Ghost of Harren Hall," an analysis of the Clash of Kings Aria 10 in which Arya Stark speeds through her internship with Bruce Bolton before getting the hell out of Hall with her little, although Kendry's not so low, but her little friends. Her little friends in the sense that, you know, they're they're a gang of kids, like it's the Goonies or the Sandlot, you know, they, sh- they should be out playing, playing games and not, uh, unfortunately, escaping haunted castles. But yeah, Arya's got to get out of that internship with Bruce. I doubt it's paid. I don't think she's even getting a reference letter out of this one. It's it's It's, it's unfortunate. Unfortunate labor situation for Arya Stark. <laughs> that's, that's one way of putting it. Does she have a, a recompense for her to file for her rights or anything like that? Maybe she can I go talk to just, uh, someone. She's going to talk to OSHA, OSHA, the character and or the agency. <laughs> no, I think, I think this is just going to be a gap on the resume we don't talk about. I think that is exactly correct for Arya in A Clash of Kings, unfortunately. And this is our final Arya chapter in A Clash of Kings, which I'm very excited to cover with you, sir. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our not-a-small-council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Ted Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley Nightwolf, the Ship that Stalks the Seven Seas, and Wheeler of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the Blade that Brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archspacer June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, Blue into Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Source Delica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Troglodyte Warrior, formerly known as Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Laura Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Stan, Ambassador Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Halderer the Way for T-Well, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Daenerys of House Colgarian, the first for name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Warwick, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh No, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, absent shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave Rob Stark, the cadaver king and horror of Harren Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils where in every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rigger Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. 
Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mandarin, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Master of Zorus, Joe Snow, King of the Better North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warness of the South, and the Patron of Free Wheeling Bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate, and Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official Ice Master and Deliverer, the valiant, pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his ginger, sweet, love queen, Anna. Thank you to all of our not a small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three dunking novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from the Snark Knight, a sworn sword patron, who asks, Your graces, do you think John Connington's arc will be changed at all by the pandemic? I don't think his destination changes, fire and lots of it, but in the same way Natalie and Natalia Tanda's performance might influence OSHA, I wonder if John Con's journey changes at all given current events. I also figure any pandemic stuff George wants to work out of system gets saved for Darren the second and Fire and Blood too. That's a great question, if a, a grim one. What do you think of that, Jeff? Do you think... Uh, current world events regarding the coronavirus is going to do you think we're going to be recognizing ourselves somewhat in john connington's grayscale arc maybe i mean george, george has a lot of plagues that he can like go back and, and <laughs> dial in in human history right? if he really, really wants to we get the, the black death being the, the big one I, I really hope that if there's a grayscale ep- outbreak it's not quite like the black death which of course killed one third to one half of the entire population of the world uh, you have the Justinian plague, which which also was is actually Yasinius pestis. It's the same exact plague as uh, as the Black Death, which killed a shit ton of of human beings in in the world, and also was was accompanied by cold, by like the worst winter in human recorded human history as well. I think in the year six thirty two, maybe I could be wrong. No, that's it's, it's before that, like the five thirties. I want to say so. There's lots of, of of shitty human epidemics that that could potentially that George can reach back to and and, and pull from from history. I. Will it though affect like you know, a song of ice and fire and the winds of winter and and John Connington in particular? You know, I, I find and maybe you could speak to this as, as a fellow writer of fiction fictional works, but it's hard not to be influenced by the current setting that you're in, even if you're not writing about the current setting. Like you're going to be embedding the emotions that you're feeling into your novel as you're writing it, and I think that's what's happening. Would happen with George. Looking at COVID and COVID-19, of course, being a humanistic type dude who also is is looking at the world and is trying to base the Song of Ice and Fire on real world events. So you got that whole thing of being ripped from the from the pages of history, which is kind of bullshit, but we can talk about that another time. Um, that that he would that he would he would at least in, inflect the the novel with 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 that feeling. Um, with the same feelings that he's experiencing as he as he's writing the Winds of Winter. I mean, there's if you go back in a Dance with Dragons, there, there's some really angry moments in the middle part of a Dance with Dragons. I don't know if you notice it from like Tyrion's chapters in particular, where George is just like pissed off. And I really, really think that um, that George like was was angry at his own inability to write the book. I know it's kind of a weird <laughs> tangent, and so he's just like kind of just like t- took it out on the manuscript itself, like the like Tyrion nine specifically sure, was. Sure. Was just one of those like angry chapters where it's like this fucking sucks. I can't, I cannot write this this book. Anyways, all that's to say is that I think like George's mood is impacted by current events. 
I do think, you know, we're going to have this discussion when we get to to Marine in A Dance with Dragons, but George was at least partially influenced by the Iraq War and the insurgency in Iraq and events from the war on terrorism, if not explicitly on page, because the Sons of the Harpy are not Al-Qaeda or anything like that. But and Danny is not necessarily the United States of America as well. I mean, these, these are all discussions we'll have there, but George is definitely inf- inflecting the novel with his um, with, with current events. So I, I think I can't, I, I would find it hard to believe that stuff that George is writing at this point, the Winds Winter is not being impacted or influenced by COVID-19. What do you think, sir? I doubt he's going to explicitly include events that everyone would recognize as being shout outs to the experience of COVID-19. I don't yeah. think we're going to see, you know, a thinly reworked version of, of <laughs> Trump's council, you know, council members dropped in there. I don't think that's going to be the kind of thing he does, but I think people are going to read into it and the sense of, of deprivation and isolation that will happen to many of his characters will be relevant. I think, you know, it's not even just going to be John Con. I think, uh, you know, uh, the winds of winter just might feel like a very, relevant book at purely in terms of tone that way and that's mm. that's the that's the the kind of time period he's trying to evoke as he said about the forsaken things are just getting darker so it'll, it'll be relevant in that way but i i, I totally agree with what you're saying that you know sadly there's lots of of plagues in human history to draw <laughs> upon this is hardly unique or even one of our worst ones so george doesn't in terms of like historical details george doesn't need 2020 for that so right. i think it'll be if, if it's going to be anything it's going to be more of a tone thing I think that's that that's completely accurate. It's, it's tone as opposed to like George is going to be like there's not going to be like a Dr. Anthony Fauci character that steps up. Right, and, exactly. That's what I'm one of thinking. the same old characters. Yeah, you're like, "No, come on, George. If if I see that, I'm just going to lose it. I'm going to lose my fucking mind." That Did will you see that post by, by George today? Um Yeah, yeah, it's true. George's I mean, you know, George George's uh, uh politics are not interesting. Like that's not a value <laughs> judgment. They're just whenever George says something politically, I'm like, "Huh?" That's boring. Not even that's wrong, necessarily. I'm just like, that's dull. <laughs> he, had, he had interesting things to say about the Vietnam War, like the 60s and the 70s, and I think like the 80s as well. You know what I mean? Did like, he even though? I mean, I think he had the right things to say about the Vietnam War, but mostly it <laughs> amounted to, I don't want to go there, which is not super, you know, I, I'm not I'm not saying I have anything super insightful to say about politics either. I, either. I think just like a lot of people, I think George is, no, it's true. I think George is, is, like a lot of people, I think is very creative at expressing political ideas in a safely fictional space. Yeah. And I think when it comes to talking about real world politics, we get scared. And I think we just, you know, we fall back on, 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 on bromides. I think everyone does that across the political spectrum to one extent or another. It is just funny as people are saying like, man, George wrote this intense story about, you know, power is a shadow on a wall and it's all a lie. Institutions are corrupt. When it comes down to his normal politics, he just likes, isn't it nice to think about America holding hands? <laughs> <laughs> let's all think about that together and it'll be like we are you know it's, it's also an age thing i think to a certain extent anywho thank you so so much to, to snark knight for the question if you'd like to ask us questions we'll answer here in the not a cast podcast you're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f where you can get show notes for every episode 36 bonus a song of ice and fire episodes 18 fever dream episodes free merch and for our two highest tiers access to the not a slack shout outs every week and weekly minisodes absolutely and speaking of those bonus episodes as you folks probably know at this point because you've been listening to us for years now we do a monthly bonus episode and we're pleased to announce that our next patron only episode for march is going to be all about drumroll please can anybody hear that zach snyder's drumroll please man of steel man of steel wait 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 but 
what about that other Zack Snyder movie that's coming out this month? That is March 2021. Something about the Lustus Jeeg? Is is that what the movie is called? I I, I don't. You're you're more of the comic book guy than I am, but that's what I believe the title is. Eustace Eustace League with like an umlaut over Eustace the U. League. <laughs> that's it's, great, it's a yeah. World War II movie. Ah, oh, that's good. That would. Man, can you imagine Zack Snyder like doing like a, a World War II movie? I mean, we, we saw him do it. We already have that. We have like we have the trench bit and Sucker Punch, which everyone should watch if they haven't, because that's that is great. Called. That is great. That I, is, I'm sorry. I'm, I actually like Sucker Punch a lot. Oh, well, so uh, about that other movie, Justice League. I know that Emmett is so eager to watch the movie, just so eager. You could just see it in his eyes, the gleam when it was announced that the Snyder Cut was finally at long last coming out. I was pretty happy. <laughs> I, I, I know. Actually. It's better than it not coming out. I was very happy. Four hours. Right. Anyway, continue. Anyways, as I continue. So um, he was so eager to watch the movie that I suggested. And he agreed, of course, after I threatened him with watching the Josh Whedon version. So we're actually going to be doing a review <laughs> of uh, of Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut as a live cast, or shall I say a drunk cast, on Monday, March 22nd. We're not going into this with any notes or anything at all. We're just going to like give ourselves like a week off in the middle of March to watch Justice League over and over again. I think we're going to call it the Joker cast, right? I think we have to. We live in a society after all. <laughs> you and I. That's why, that's why I'm excited that we've gone all the way through till we live in a society. Now we've, there's no pretense anymore. We're home. Yes. So if you think that the banner that we're having right now is fun, because most of it's not actually all that scripted here, it's going to be so much fun to do this live with with you, sir. And I hope you all be tuning in for that on Monday, March 22nd. But again, there will be a Patreon bonus episode all about Man of Steel, which Emmett has a lot of really deep and complex thoughts about. And I like the, ooh, shit goes boom. That's my opinion about Man of Steel. It sure does. <laughs> I think so, too. I think so, too. Yeah. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Arya Stark, she had made some tasty soup for Emery Lorch's guards at Heron Hall, and then had said farewell to Jack and Agar, and witnessed the um, liberation of Heron Hall by the uh, hero, Roose Bolton, who is, of course, the Lord of the Dreadfort. Hmm. Let's find out how Heron Hall and Arya are enjoying their newfound freedom in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Arya 10. The heads had been dipped in tar to slow the rot. Every morning when Arya went to the well to draw fresh water for Roos Bolton's basin, she had to pass beneath them. They faced outwards so she never had to, so she never saw their faces, but she liked to pretend that one of them was Joffrey's. She tried to picture how his pretty face would look dipped in tar. If I was a crow, I could fly down and peck off his stupid, fat, pouty lips. So, in answer to my question, badly, Harrenhal and Arya are enjoying their freedom quite badly. Those heads don't sit there by their lonesome, though. Oh, no. Crows come in screaming to peck at the flesh. And sometimes the ravens from the rookery join in, too. Wait, but don't the maesters of Harrenhal feed their ravens? Yeah, in, in normal, happier circumstances, as happy as Harrenhal gets, yes, they would. But Maester Tothmuir, the Harrenhal maester, had gotten slightly beheaded for sending ravens to Casterly Rock and King's Landing about the Northmen taking the castle. Tothmir was not alone among those who had been crushed under by the new regime. Tothmir had been sent to the Axe for dispatching burrs to Castle Rock in King's Landing the night Harrenhal had fallen, Luke in the armor for making weapons for the Lannisters, Goodwife Hara for telling Lady Wint's household servants to serve them, the steward for giving Lord Tywin the keys to the treasure vault, 
The cook was spared, some said because he'd made the weasel soup, but stocks were hammered together for a pretty pie and the other women who'd shared their favors with Lancer soldiers. Stripped and shaved, they were left in the middle ward beside the bear pit, free for the use of any man who wanted them. Arya walks through the yard and sees three Frey bannermen raping the women and laughing about him. She averts her gaze quickly, gets the water, and turns to go to the King's Pyre Tower. But then goodwife Amabel grabs Arya's arm and water sloshes on the woman. The woman screams that Arya did that on purpose. Arya demands to know what Amabel wants. As to that, Amabel points to Paya and the rest of the women and says that Arya is going to be in Paya's place when the Lannisters come back to take Harrenhal. Let me go! Arya tried to wrench free, but Amabel only tightened her fingers. He'll fall too. Harrenhal pulls them all down in the end. Lord Tywin's won now. He'll be marching back with all his power, and then it'll be his turn to punish the disloyal. Don't think he won't. And don't think he won't know what you did. The old woman laughed. I may have a turn at you myself. Harrow had an old broom. I'll save it for you. The handle's cracked and splintery. Arya swings the bucket she's carrying. It doesn't hit Amabel like she wanted, but it does drench the woman with water. Arya warns Amabel to never touch her again or she'll kill her. Amabel jabs a finger at the flayed man badge on Arya's surcoat and says it won't save her. The Lannisters will come for her. Arya has to return to the well, though, to get more water, as most of the water was now on Amabel. As she heads back to the well, Arya wonders if she should snitch on Amabel to roost the noose, but she decides that she's not going to. Arya sees the heads again, but then Gendry is there. He asks if she's admiring what she did. Arya knows that Gendry is upset because Lucan had been killed, and Gendry liked Lucan. She claims, though, it was Steelshanks Bolton and the Bloody Mummers who were truly responsible for Lucan's death. And who gave us all them? You and your weasel suit. Arya punched Gendry's arm. It was just hot broth. You, you hated Sir Amory, too. I hate this lot worse. Sir Amory was fighting for his lord, but the mummers are sellswords and turncloaks. Half of them can't even speak the common tongue. Septon Ute likes little boys. Kyburn does black magic, and your friend Biter eats people. Gendry know, Arya knows Gendry is right. The brave companions were foraging for Roos now, looking for Lannisters. And how did they know the Lannisters from the not Lannisters? Why, by rolling into the villages they had foraged from when they were employed by the Lannisters and returning to Harrenhal with more silver and baskets full of heads. Shaggle even had a fun, so fun little riddle about all the war crimes that they were doing. A riddle, Shaggle would gloat gleefully. If Lord Bolton's goat eats the men who fed the Lord Lannister's goat, how many goats are there? One, Arya said when he asked her. Now there's a weasel clever as a goat, the fool tittered. Rorge and Biter were just as bad. Arya would see them when Roos would eat with his men. Or more accurately, she could smell Biter, who was made to sit by himself, while Rorge would hang out with faithful use Urswick with his eyes crawling all over Arya. Maybe it had been a really bad idea not to go with Jack and Agar. She still had his coin with her, though, with all the strange writing on one sign at a man's head with its features rubbed off. <laughs> okay. Arya thinks the coin is worthless and that Jack can lie to her, so she throws the coin away. But... Then she goes and finds it. Arya thinks about the coin, but then a voice calls out to ask for her help. Whose voice? Why, the voice of Elmar, the Fud Frey, of course. Fud Frey was the same age as Arya, and he had been rolling a barrel of sand across the yard. Together, the two of them get the barrel upright. Elmer, Fud Frey, pulls the lid open and pulls out a chainmail chain hauberk. He asks if it looks clean enough for Roose Bolton. Uh, maybe if Elmer wasn't Roose Bolton Squire, but he is. It's a shit duh. It's a shit job, Frey. Fud Frey, get that rust out. You do it. Elmer could be friendly when he needed help, but afterward he would always remember that he was a squire and she was only a serving girl. He liked to boast how he was the son of the Lord of the Crossing, not a nephew or a bastard or a grandson, but a true-born son, and on account of that he was going to marry a princess. 
Hmm. Could Elmer Frey be a representation of House Frey as a whole? Yeah, probably not. Arya doesn't care about Elmar's princess, and he doesn't like him bossing her around either. She needs to get the water to roost for the leeches. And these aren't the regular leeches, too. They're the big, pale ones. Elmer gets scared of this and tells Arya she's too skinny to push a barrel. Oh, yeah? Well, Elmer the Fud. Okay, I promise I'll stop saying Elmer the Fud, but it's too fucking funny. I'll stop doing it at, at, at this point. It's too stupid, according to Arya. The Lord's bedchamber was crowded when she entered. Kyburn was in attendance, and Dower Walton in his male shirt and greaves, plus a dozen phrase, all brothers, half-brothers, and cousins. Roos Bolton lay abed naked. Leeches clung to the inside of his arms and legs and dotted his pallid chest, long translucent things that turned a glistening pink as they fed. Bolton paid them no more mind than he did Arya. Okay, so the extremely normal reintroduction of Roos Bolton, naked with leeches covering his body and framing all around him. Very normal, very, very healthy. Sir Anus, uh, Sir, Sir Anus, I mean, uh, Anus Frey says that he, <laughs> I even wrote the notes and I fucked it up anyways, says that he doesn't want to be trapped at Harrenhal by Lord Tywin. Anus had brought 1,500 swords with him to Harrenhal, but he was unable to command his brother's Frey. Anus says the castle is big, but it doesn't have enough supplies and the countryside was in ruins. It's not important to get into the whole who ruined the countryside debate now, though. That's for later. <laughs> They're living on forage, and if they run out of that, they'll be living like Stannis at Storm's End on rats and shoe leather. I do not mean to be besieged here. Bruce Bolton's voice was so soft that men had a strain to hear it, so his chambers were always strangely hushed. What then, demanded Sir Jared Frey, who was lean, balding, and pockmarked. Is Edmure Turley so drunk on victory that he thinks to give Lord Tywin battle in the open field? If he does, he'll beat them, Arya thought. He'll beat them as he did on the Red Fork. You'll see. Unnoticed, she went to stand by Kyburn. Lord Tywin is many leagues from here, Bolton said calmly. He has many manners yet to settle at King's Landing. He will not march on Harrenhal for some time. Sir Aenys shook his head stubbornly. You do not know the Lannisters as we do, my lord. King Stannis thought that Lord Tywin was a thousand leagues away as well, and it undid him. The pale man in the bed smiled faintly as the leeches nursed of his blood. I am not a man to be undone, sir. And welcome back to Emmett slash Roose Bolton here. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for months at this point. Sir Aenys states that if even if they come to full strength, they are hopelessly outmatched by the numbers that the Lannisters and the Tyrells now have. Roos has not forgotten this fact. Then up pipes Sir Hostine, him of the future. Hey, does this lake look frozen enough to you, fame? Frey, who declares he doesn't want to be a point of, uh, point of view, to be a POW again. His cousin, Sir Harry's Haig, pipes up that Rob doesn't stand a chance against Tywin since the Lion Lord beat Stannis. Hostine, who will one day bravely ride his heavy horse in all of its armor across a frozen lake in the direction of something known as a night lamp, has something to say. Someone must have the courage to say it, Sir Hostine Frey. The war is lost. King Rob must be made to see that. Bruce Bolton studied him with pale eyes. His grace has defeated the Lannisters every time he has faced them in battle. He, he, he has lost the North, insisted Hostine Frey. He, he has lost Winterfell. His brothers are dead. Arya stops breathing. Wait, Bran and Rickon were dead? What happened at Winterfell? Joffrey was, was, was nowhere near there. Rob wouldn't let him. But then she remembers that Rob wasn't at Winterfell. He was in the Westerlands. Bran was paralyzed and Rickon was four years old. Arya stays silent and still like Syrah taught her, but she feels the tears coming. It, it, it's not true. It, it can't be true. It's, it's just some Lannister lie. 
I'd Stannis want all might have been different, Ronald Rivers said wistfully. He was one of Lord Walter's bastards. Stannis lost, Sir Hostine said bluntly. Wishing it otherwise will not make it so. King Rob must make his peace with the Lannisters. He must put off his crown and bend the knee, little as he may like it. And who will tell him so? Roose Bolton smiled. It is a fine thing to have so many valiant brothers <laughs> in such troubled times. I shall think on all you've said. That's so good. Roos dismisses everyone but Kyburn, Steelshanks, Walton, and Arya. He orders Arya, or Nan, as she's going by these days, to remove the leeches, and she moves to obey immediately. She wants to ask about Winterfell, but she would never dare. She'll try to ask Elmer Frey later. Arya starts to remove the leeches as Kyburn unrolls the letter, announcing it's from his wife, Walter Frey. As for Kyburn, well, get a load of this guy! Though Kyburn wore maester's robes, there was no chain about his neck. It was whispered that he had lost it for dabbling in necromancy. It's everyone in Harrenhal like fit glove-like into this fucking castle, but because this guy definitely does. Roos tells Kybern to read the letter, and Kybern reads the letter out loud, which, <laughs> I mean, I, okay, I'll just read the letter. The Lady Walter wrote from the twins almost every day, but all the letters were the same. I pray for you, morn, noon, and night, my sweet lord, she wrote, and count the days until you share my bed again. Return to me soon, and I will give you many true-born sons to take the place of your dear Domeric and rule the Dreadford after you. Arya pictured a plump pink baby in a cradle covered with plump pink leeches. <laughs> Yikes. Arya brings Roos, who remains very loose with his quote-unquote soft, hairless body. Let your mind fixate on that image. And is still naked, a washcloth. Roos says he'll send a letter of his own, but not to Lady Walder, to Helmut Tallhart. A rider from Sir Helmut had come two days past. Tallhart men had taken the castle of the Dairies, accepting the surrender of its Lancer garrison after a brief siege. Tell him to put the captives to the sword and the castle to the torch, by command of the king. Then he is to join forces with Robert Glover and strike east toward Duskendale. Those are rich lands and hardly touched by the fighting. It is time they had a taste. Glover has lost a castle and Tallheart a son. Let them take their vengeance on Duskendale. It's weird, right? I don't seem to remember Rob Stark ever giving that order or Catelyn hmm. hearing anything... Hmm. Strange. And, and I also thought I also thought the Northmen were good, right? Right? Are they like Tyrion? Are they not actually good? Okay, Kyburn says he'll prepare the message, and Arya gets a little dark, thinking it'll be great that the dairies get burned. That was where the shit went down in book one with Lady and Joffrey. She does think it's too bad that they marched before she decided whether she could trust them. I will hunt today, Bruce Bolton announced as Kyburn helped him into a quilted jerkin. Is it safe, my lord? Kyburn asked. Only three days passed, Septon Ute's men were attacked by wolves. They came right into his camp not five yards from the fire and killed two horses. It is the wolves I mean to hunt. I can scarcely sleep at night for the howling. Bolton buckled on his belt, adjusting the hang of sword and dagger. It's said that dire wolves once roamed the north in great packs of hundred or more, and feared neither man nor mammoth, but that was long ago and in another land. It is queer to see the common wolves of the south so bold. Terrible times breed terrible things, my lord. Bolton showed his teeth in something that might have been a smile. <laughs> are these times so terrible, maester? Some years gone, and there are four kings in the realm. One king may be terrible, but four? He shrugged. Nan, my fur cloak. She brought it to him. My chambers will be clean and orderly upon my return, he told her as she fastened it and tend to Lady Walder's letter. 
Arya stays behind as the two men leave. Wait, two men? What happened to Steel Shanks Walton? He was mentioned as being there. Well, I actually think this is actually a kind of George kind of forgot about Steel Shanks being in the room, the same way that Daenerys forgot about Emery. I'll, I'll move on from there. Anyways, Arya takes the letter and burns it in the fireplace. As the letter curls in flame, she cries, wondering if this is her home now that Winterfell is gone. Is she Arya or will she be Nan for the rest of her life? She spends hours cleaning Bruce Bolton's chambers, but as she finishes, Arya notices a large sheepskin rolled up. She unfurls it and sees that it's a map called The Lands of the Trident. She finds Harrenhal on the map, looks for Riverrun, and finds it. It doesn't seem so far away. But now that she's done, she finds it still early in the afternoon. So she heads off to the godswood, thankful that her duties as a cupbearer were lighter than her previous duties. Plus, the hunt wouldn't return for hours. She had time for needlework. She slashed at birch leaves till the splintery point of the broken broomstick was green and sticky. Sir Gregor, she breathed. Dunson, Bolivar, wrapped the sweetling. She spun and leapt and balanced on the balls of her feet, darting this way and that, knocking pine cones flying. The tickler, she called out one time. The hound, the next. Sir Illan, Sir Marin, Queen Cersei. The bowl of an oak loomed before her and she lunged to drive her point through it, grunting, Joffrey, Joffrey, Joffrey. Her arms and legs were dappled by the sunlight and the shadows of leaves. A sheen of sweat covered her skin by the time she paused. The heel of her right foot was bloody where she'd skinned it. So she stood one-legged before the heart tree and raised her sword in salute. Valar Mogulis, she's told the old gods of the north. She liked how the words sounded when she said them. A little meta by George. You can imagine George like sitting there being like, Valar Mogulis. Yeah, that's a cool sounding phrase. Arya heads over to the bathhouse, sees a raven circling the maester's tower, and wonders what the message is. Maybe it's from Rob saying the stuff about Bran and Rickon wasn't true. She kind of wishes she could be a bird, though, and fly up to Winterfell herself to examine the truth of it. If it was true, she would fly away from Westeros to see the world as described by old Nan, and she might never, ever come back. Roos's hunting party returns at nightfall with nine dead wolves. He orders the seven adult wolves to be skinned and their furs sewn into a blanket for himself. One of his men thinks the two wolf pups would serve as a good pair of gloves. Bolton glanced up at the banners waving above the gatehouse towers. As the Starks are wont to remind us, winter is coming. Have it done. When he saw Arya looking on, he said, Nan, I'll want a flagon of hot spice wine. I took a chill in the woods. See that it doesn't get cold. I'm of a mind to sup alone. Barley bread, butter, and boar. At once, my lord. That was always the thing to say. Arya finds hot pie in the kitchens making oat cakes. She gives Bruce's order to the cooks, and one of them fills the pot with red wine while hot pie crumbles spices into the pot. Arya tries to help, but hot pie tells her to get lost. Arya then realizes that hot pie hates her too, or is scared of her anyways. When the wine and the food are done, Arya takes it across the way with someone shouting at her whether it was weasel soup. When Arya enters Roose Bolton's chambers, she finds him reading a leather-bound book. He orders candles lit. So Arya puts the book next to him and lights some candles. Bolton turned a few more pages with his finger, then closed the book and placed it carefully in the fire. He watched the flames consume it, pale eyes shining with reflected light. The old dry leather went up with a whoosh and the yellow pages stirred as they burned, as if some ghost were reading them. I will have no further use, I will have no further need of you tonight, he said, never looking at her. She should have gone, silent as a mouse, but something had hold of her. My lord, she asked, will you take me with you when you leave Harrenhal? He turned to stare at her, and from the look in his eyes, it was as if his supper had just spoken to him. Did I give you leave to question me, Nan? No, my lord, she lowered her eyes. You should not have spoken then, should you? No, my lord. 
For a moment, he looked amused. I will answer you, just this once. I mean to give Harrenhal to Lord Vargo when I return to the north. You will remain here with him. But I, but, but I, I don't... She started. He cut her off. I am not in the habit of being questioned by servants. Now, must I have your tongue out? Arya knows Roose would do it, so she subsides, and Roose asks whether she'll speak again. She won't. Go, then. I shall forget this insolence. Arya leaves Roose's chambers, but she doesn't head back to her own bed. The guard tells her that a storm is coming. Instead, she heads over to the godswood. But on the way, she hears angry voices talking and arguing. She sees, she sees Elmer Frey sitting alone and asks what's wrong. My princess, he's only been dishonored. And he says that there's a bird from the twins. But my lord father says I'll need to marry someone else. I'll have to be accepted. Stupid princess, Arya thought. That's nothing to cry over. My, my brother's maybe dead, she confided. Elmer gave her a scornful look. No one cares about a serving girl's brothers. It was hard not to hit him when he said that. I hope your princess dies, she said, and ran off before he could grab her. Arya, if you only knew. In the godswood, Arya gets her broomstick sword and carries it to the heart tree. She kneels and asks the gods what to do. For a while, she doesn't hear anything beyond the normal sounds, but then she hears wolves off in the distance, and her goose prickles rise on her skin. Then, so faintly, it seemed as if she heard her father's voice. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives, he said. But but there is no pack, she whispered to the werewood. Bran and Rickon were dead. The Lannisters had Sansa. John had gone to the wall. I'm not even me now. I, I'm not. I'm Nan. You are Arya Stark of Winterfell, daughter of the North. You told me you could be strong. You have the wolf blood in you. The wolf blood, Arya remembered now. I'll be as strong as Rob. I said I would. She took a deep breath and lifted the broomstick in both hands and brought it down across her knee. It broke with a loud crack, and she threw the pieces aside. I am a direwolf, and I am done with wooden teeth. Fuck yeah, this is the good shit. This is how you do an awesome <laughs> character climax. A conclusion to an arc. This is why it's my favorite freaking chapter of Arya's, at least in The Clash of Kings. Arya lays down in her bed, waiting for the moon to rise, listening to her breath and the cries of the wolves. She thinks the wolves are calling her. She gets up and into her tunic and heads down the stairs. She bypasses the main door as it was guarded and hears the wind screaming through the wailing tower. She makes her way over to the forge and finds Gendry in bed. She puts a hand over his mouth and whispers, please, and points. Gendry stirs himself up and huddles with Arya in a corner. What, what, is, what do you want, Arya? A sword? No, no, no. Gendry's not doing that shit. The blades are locked up anyways. Okay, then break the lock. No. They're going to break Gendry's hand if he does that, or even kill him. No, they won't. Not if Gendry comes with her. And why would Gendry do that? Lord Bolton is giving Harrenhal to the bloody mumbers. He told me so. Gendry pushed black hair out of his eyes. So? She looked right at him, fearless. So, when Vargo hosts the Lord, he's going to cut off the feet of all the servants and keep them from running away. The smiths, too. Gendry thinks this is a story, but Arya lies and says she heard Vargo say as much. He's going to cut the left foot off every servant. Arya then tells Gendry to go get Hot Pie up and to get some food together. They'll meet by the Tower of the Ghosts. I know that gate. It's guarded. Same as the rest. So you won't forget the swords? I never said I'd come. No, but if you do, you won't forget the swords. Gendry frowned. No, he said at last. I guess I won't. 
Arya re-enters Kingspire and heads up the stairs. She grabs some clothes from her room. She then gets her shoes on, puts on the Bolton tunic, and creeps down the stairs. She sneaks into Roose Bolton's chambers and grabs the map and Roose Bolton's dagger, and then she heads to the stables. There, she wakes one of the grooms up and tells him that Roose Bolton wants three horses saddled and bridled. Now! When the groom starts to protest, Arya reminds him that Roose Bolton is not in the habit of being questioned by servants. The boy sees Arya's flayed man badge and gets to work getting three fast and sure-footed horses. Then Arya carefully leads the horses through the shadowed parts of the castle, making sure to stay out of the eyesight of everyone. The wind howls and the air smells like rain. Arya is not sure whether that's good or bad for their escape. Along the way, she sees a cat, gray and white, and says that she could catch the cat if she wanted to. But she doesn't have time. She's out of here. Arya reaches the Tower of Ghosts, a ruined desolate tower, and waits for Hot Pie and Gendry. While she waits, the horses eat grass, and she sharpens her knife with long, smooth strokes like Sir taught her. Sharpening her knife calms her. But then Hot Pie and Gendry arrive, all loud and out of breath. Arya tells them to chill the fuck out and be quiet. Arya sees that Gendry has his blacksmith hammer across his back, like his dad, while Hot Pie has a sack of bread under one arm and a wheel of cheese around the other. Gendry warns that there's a guard on the gate. Arya tells him to stay with the horses. She's going to take care of this. Gendry nodded. Hot Pie said, Hoot like an owl when you want to succumb. I'm not an owl, said Arya. I'm a wolf. I'll howl. Alone, she slid through the shadow of the Tower of Ghosts. She walked fast to keep ahead of her fear, and it felt as though Cyril Farrell walked beside her, and Yorin, and Jack and Agar, and Jon Snow. She had not taken the sword Gendry had brought her. Not yet. For this, the dagger would be better. It was good and sharp. Hmm. Whatever is Arya planning here, guys? The postern gate was the smallest gate in Harrenhal, thus it was only manned by one guard. Still, there would be people up in the tower above. She had to be quiet and quick. Rain then begins to fall, and she walks confidently towards the door as if she's here on official business. As she approaches, though, she sees that this guard is a Northman, and that's bad news. This jabroni had probably served Roose Bolton all his life, and he couldn't be easily fooled like a bloody mummer or a fray. Maybe she should tell the guard that she's Arya Stark of Winterfell, but probably not. This guy was a Bolton man. She walks up, pushing back her cloak to reveal her Bolton sigil, and tells the man that Lord Bolton sent her. The man is equally confused and suspicious. He asks, why? Why now at this late hour? She could see the gleam of steel under the fur, and she did not know if she was strong enough to drive the point of the dagger through chainmail. Chain his throat. It must be his throat, but he's too tall. I'll, I'll never reach it. For a moment, she did not know what to say. For a moment, she was a little girl again and scared, and the rain on her face felt like tears. He told me all his guards. He told me to give all his guards a silver piece for their good service. The words seemed to come out of nowhere. Silver, you say? He did not believe her, but he wanted to. Silver was silver after all. Give it over then. Arya reaches into her pocket and comes out with the coin Jackanagar gave her. She holds it out, but lets it drop to the ground. The man curses and goes to the ground, digging around for the coin. Arya slid her dagger out and drew it across his throat as smooth as summer silk. His blood covered her hands in a hot gush, and he tried to shout, but there was blood in his mouth as well. Father Mogulis, she whispered as he died. When the man stops twitching, she picks up the coin as a wolf howls long outside of the castle. Arya lifts the bar off the door, sets it down, and opens it. Hot Pie and Gendry come up then, stunned. Hot Pie exclaims that, that Arya killed him. What did you think I would do? Arya's fingers were sticky with blood, and the smell was making her mare skittish. It's no matter, she thought, swinging up onto the saddle. The rain will wash them clean again. 
And that is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings, Aria 10. Fucking wow. This chapter is absolutely and darkly captivating. It's my favorite Aria chapter in A Clash of Kings. Like I said, our mini so we record every week for our small counselors and our high lords and ladies. My Definitely, I think, of the top three Aria chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. What did you think, sir? Well, it's been a while since we had an Aria chapter, but George more than makes up for it. The only problem with Arya 10 is that it's too much of a good thing. <laughs> George not only gets Arya and her sidekicks out of Harrenhal, not only wraps up her character arc in the book, but also shows us in detail how the Battle of Blackwater shook up the game board, ultimately leading to the Red Wedding. It's an ambitious chapter and also an intricate one. Along with Sansa 8, next week it perfectly sets up the story for A Storm of Swords. It's a, you're, you're absolutely right that it's a massive, massive chapter. One of the longest in the Clash of Kings with a lot going on. I, I do wonder whether at one point this was two or even more chapters that George smushed together to one major chapter, one big chapter. And that is something that he did talk about in one of his recent Winds of Winter updates as being something that's been always part of his process for for writing A Song of Ice and Fire and his earlier novels. In this way, this kind of like larger chapter, Aria 10 feels very A Feast for Crozy to me. In both being a long chapter, as well as also in the way that George had written actually smaller chapters for Face of Crows before combining them into larger chapters. Like the Princess, Princess of the Tower is probably the, the, best, the best example of that. In my estimation, though, I, I think that like Arya... 10 feels very Feast for Crows to me because it also tries to accomplish a lot in terms of its overall thematic work and character work. And I think George really nails both with all of the things that Arya has experienced and witnessed, culminating in one of the darkest chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, there's some definitely darker chapters, some of them even in Arya's storyline in A Clash of Kings that we've experienced so far. And hey, speaking of A Feast for Crows parallels... What does this chapter open with, but with crows and ravens eating the flesh, muscle, and bone from the severed heads of the people who had been caught in the gears of regime change? Mm -hmm, really well put. In Arya's last chapter, she rebelled against the Lannisters that had taken so much away from her and the people around her, helping Northmen take Harrenhal and execute Amory Lorch. This was her third and final wish. As this chapter begins, we see the fallout. Be careful what you wish for. Arya has not liberated Harrenhal. If anything, life somehow got worse. She is staring up at heads dipped in tar to slow the rot. It's a grisly warning that doubles as a symbol of guilt. They're not rotting away, they're sticking around to haunt Arya. As she goes about her new duties, she can't avoid them, but at least they look outward so she can't see their faces. Arya can't process the horror of the new regime. So she imagines that instead of innocent people up there, it's Joffrey. She can safely hate him. Arya's trying to hold on to the Arya is trying to hold on to the catharsis of vengeance, the justice she sought with Jock and Hagar in this in his three wishes. But that is only a shadow. The bitter reality is that those heads belong to residents of Harrenhal, executed by Roose Bolton upon taking possession of the castle. What was their crime? having the gall, the nerve, to try and survive under Lannister occupation. Lucan made them weapons, goodwife Hera served their household needs, the steward opened the treasure vault for them. Gone unspoken here is what would have happened to these people if they had refused Tywin. They would have ended up as spikes on walls anyway. You can maybe make the case that Maester Tothmer demonstrated outright Lannister loyalty by sending ravens to King's Landing and the Rock as the castle fell. He didn't have to do that. 
But otherwise, this is a clear miscarriage of justice, demonstrating that Roos is no better than Tywin, and does not see these people as, well, people. He doesn't care that they had no choice. All that matters to Roos is stamping his rule over every inch of Hall, making sure everyone knows I'm in charge now. Yeah, and what is the difference between that and Tywin Lannister as we saw in Arya's earlier Clash Kings chapters? Not a huge amount of difference, honestly. What I also see in these executions, murders, both, is how George is subtly depicting Bruce Bolton as kind of the dark Ned and also the dark Rob. I think I did talk about this in an earlier Arya Clash of Kings chapter, but I'll bring up the point again because I think it becomes crystallized here. When we meet Ned in A Game of Thrones brand one, he's beheading Garrett as a Night's Watch deserter. He does that deed to satiate a form of justice as he articulates to Bran in that chapter. In truth, the man was an oathbreaker, a deserter from the Night's Watch. No man is more dangerous. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is if it is if he has taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. Now, of course, you can argue over the ethical construct that Ned constructs around beheading Garrett, but it largely flows from a position that killing deserters safeguards innocent life. Not so the case here with Roose Bolton. There are heads of plenty here, but the crimes, as you so rightfully point out, are not actual crimes. It's Roose Bolton imposing his rule over Harrenholm and is using the full force of fear to do so. And then there's Roose Bolton's relationship to his soldiers. As Arya will briefly mention later in this chapter, Roose Bolton sometimes takes his meals with his men. Yeah, I was kind of surprised myself when I caught that on reread because I was like, Roose Bolton eats with his, his soldiers? Weird. But these meals have Roose hanging out with his brave companions and also ensuring Biter stays away as he smells bad. And it's a twisted way that's sort of similar to Ned inviting members of his staff and the Mountain Clansmen to join him at table at Winterfell and also encouraging Rob to know the men he leads. And that kind of gets into some dark Rob sides of Roos. We'll unpack the council scene that Roos has with the phrase in depth later on. But Roos Bolton holds council with his knights in a similar fashion to how Rob did it in A Game of Thrones with his Lord's Bannerman. However, Rob was seeking advice from all of his Lord's Bannermen, as Catelyn observed when they were at Moat Caelan. Ned and Rob attempted to get to know their men from the vantage point of honoring their service by knowing the soldiers who might one day give their lives below a Stark banner. There's something just, I mean, it's strange as this sounds, but there's something altogether darker about Roos Bolton being a quote-unquote leader of men. Because Roos Bolton is not below killing, as we'll find out at the Red Wedding, and he's definitely not below rape, as we'll find out in A Dance with Dragons. But he is not seen actively participating in these activities at Harrenhal, at least as far as we know. But he's given free reign for his men to do all of that, ordering the foraging parties and likely the executions too. And that stand that's been erected in Harrenhal Yard with the women in it, someone built that, right? Or ordered it built. Or someone shrugged his shoulders and said, yeah, fine by me. That person is Roos Bolton. And the darker get-to-know-your-men thing Roos has is one where he gets to know the bestial evil desires of his men and allows them to take out their lust for murder or rape, perhaps even encouraging him. So what's the point of making Roos Bolton have some of the same characteristics as Ned and Rob? Partially, it's to show Roose Bolton as a dark mirror to the Starks, but I think the other part, and the more important part, is to give us conflicting feelings about Roose. He's a Northman, so he's a good guy, right? No. He kind of operates similar to Ned and Rob, two heroic, char- heroic coded characters, but it's in the appearances that he's similar, not in the actions. It's a way for George to make us feel uneasy, queasy even, about this guy, even as we keep thinking that he may just be a cold, brutal, he may just be a cold, brutal weirdo, but ultimately he's just a utilitarian doing what needs to be done in order to win one for the Starks, at least for first-time readers. But that cold brutality, 
it's, it's George playing straight with us. It, it's our own minds and biases that are trying to excuse Roose Bolton. At least when I was reading Song of Ice and Fire for the first time and I was reading about Roose Bolton, I was thinking about him like, yeah, he's a little bit off, but like, yeah, at least he's doing something for the Stark cause. And yeah, there's a lot of like terrible shit and evil things happening. But at the same time, he's a Stark bannerman, so he has to be good, right? Right? No. Because the darkness goes way, way farther than simply killing a lot of people and then even stealing the food from the small folk. Roos cements his power via rape as well as murder. He had Pia and the other women who slept with Lannister soldiers stripped and thrown into stocks. They are regularly raped by the common soldiers, extending the evil of the new regime well beyond Roos himself and the Bloody Mummers. As with They Lay With Lions in The Storm of Swords, these rapes reveal a callousness reserved for women who use sex to survive. As with the heads on the walls, no one acknowledges the coercion and desperation involved. They're acting like these are Lannister secret agents or spies that need to be punished rather than people who were just trying to get by while the Lannisters were in charge. Roose's hideous policies extend well beyond the castle itself. He sends the bloody mummers back into the countryside to root out Lannister traitors. What that means in practice, of course, is that the mummers are killing the very people who helped them out when they were working for Tywin. That's how they know who the traitors are. There is a cruel irony linking all these atrocities together, as, as uh, Shagwell makes clear to the audience when he, he tells that little joke, a little riddle. If Lord Bolton's goat eats the men who fed Lord, Lord Lannister's goat, how many goats are there? One, Arya said when he asked her. There's only one goat devouring the countryside. Who cares if he's flying the lion or wolf banner as he does it? He leaves the same death and devastation in his wake. The Bloody Mummers link the sides of the war in the Riverlands together. Both are willing to work with these monsters. Time for caveats. Tywin is the overall Lannister commander. Roose is a theater commander on the Stark side. Rob has no idea any of this is happening and would never give such orders himself. His cause is still the more sympathetic one... But that is cold comfort to Lucan facing the axe, or Pia facing endless assault and deprivation and humiliation. Roos would never have had power over them if Rob had not put him in charge of his infantry. I always think of uh, Colin Powell's Pottery Barn anecdote. You break it, you bought it. Rob unleashed Roos and owns what he has done. I also think of civilians in World War II living in areas occupied regularly by both sides, flying one flag and then the other, fearing reprisals from both. It is devastating to read about these atrocities, one after the other, but George is rubbing our nose in the muck to make a vital point. We cannot rely on the good guys winning to heal Westeros. We cannot assume, as Arya did, that vengeance will automatically produce justice. These war crimes are both raison d'etre and casus belli for the Brotherhood Without Banners, who will name Roose right alongside Gregor and Vargo Hote as the enemies of the people that they are sworn to fight. Hmm. Radicalization is the inevitable result of this perpetual violence that makes mockery of any official means of redress. In this chapter, though, the Brotherhood are still a ways off. We are left with Arya's sense of disillusionment and despair. There is no way to do the right thing as an individual, and there's nothing larger worth being a part of. I think you made that great point in one of our earlier uh, Arya chapters about how the Brotherhood is just a story for a lot of these people who are being marched up to Harrenhal and who are in Harrenhal itself. They are not going to be brought on page until a Storm of Swords proper. And, and I think that's important that George is setting the, this one force out there as like the, the response to, to the brutalities that are being inflicted by, by both sides in, in this war. 
And I, you you had mentioned World War II earlier, and I think that George is very openly borrowing from World War II, even more openly as 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 the specifics of what he's what's being done to Paya and the rest of women who quote unquote lay with lions borrows heavily from what happened after the Western Allies liberated France and the Netherlands. Uh, a lot of times, what happened is that after a French or Dutch town was liberated, women who had slept with German soldiers were ritually rounded up by their fellow citizens and had their heads shaved. Why shave their heads? Uh, from a 2009 Guardian article about this practice, it's, quote, There was a strong element of vicarious eroticism among the tondures and their crowd, even though the punishment they were about to inflict symbolized the desexualization of their victims. The crimes inflicted on Paya and these other women go beyond what occurred among French and Dutch civilians, though, during World War II, most of them anyways. As the Soviet Red Army drove the German Wehrmacht back into Germany, many women, estimates range up to 2 million, were raped by Russian soldiers. This is not strictly a phenomenon of the Red Army, as some propagandists would believe. German historian Miriam Gerbart calculated that up to 190,000 women were raped by U.S. servicemen between 1945 and 1955 in West Germany. And these, are, these are staggering statistics, and, and these atrocities were committed by the good guys in World War II. So you brought up caveats before, and I'll, I'll add a few myself here. The Axis powers were way worse, and I'm also really fucking tired of hearing that argument. Yeah. They were way worse, but the Nazis in Imperial Japan were way worse. Of course they were. And of course the Lannisters were way worse too. We need only remember Arya's five, Arya witnesses the Lannister atrocities in the village by the God's Eye, and Arya's six, Arya witnesses Lannister atrocities on the road to Harrenhal to see this in practice. I also agree with you that Rob Stark was unaware of what Roose Bolton was getting into at Harrenhal. And yet, it wasn't just evil Freys and Boltons doing terrible shit at Harrenhal. Willis Manderley, Robert Glubber, Helmut Talhart. Kerbins, Locks, Burleys, Riswells, Condens, Stouts are either at Harrenhal or Castle Derry and under Roos's command. We don't hear any of them saying a goddamn word about against the atrocities going on at Harrenhal, or even doing the bare minimum of sending word to Edmure or Rob from Castle Derry, letting the High Command know what that Roos was doing war crimes here at Harrenhal. And we know that they know something about what's happening here at Harrenhal too, even if they're in Castle Derry. Glover Tarhart send writers that bring messages announcing that they took Derry and asked Roos what to do next. And they had to have seen the heads or what's happening at Heron, at the Harrenhal courtyard. They had to take that information back to Helmut Tarhart and Robert Glover. That's complicity in what's happening at Harrenhal. And to me, I think it's tacit approval of the gang rapes, murders, repillaging of the countryside, etc. The Northmen, the Rivermen, these are supposed to be the, the good guys in the War of the Five Kings. The same sorts who shouted King of the North at the end of a Game of Thrones. But now amidst the small folk and unopposed by Lannisters, they become wolves savaged by sheep. Most people here would probably cite Jorah Mormont's quote about the small folk, but I, I think Septon Maribold better speaks to the horrors that the small folk face in Harrowhall. It is being common born that is dangerous when the great lords play their Game of Thrones. Jamie asks in A Storm of Swords, by what right does the wolf judge the lion? It's in a very different context. But I, do, but I do think it fits the theme present in this chapter, too, insofar as what Roos does or allows to happen at Harrenhal. You make, you make great points about the, the connection to the reprisals in World War II. There's uh, the movie Black Book with uh, uh, Carrie Sven Houghton, actually, who plays Melisandre in Game of Thrones, directed by Paul Verhoeven, who had the Dutch director would come to Hollywood to make Robocop and Total Recall and your favorite Starship Troopers, of course. And then when he went back to Europe, he made Black Book, which was about about exactly that, about reprisals uh, against women in the wake of World War II. And it's a, it's a very sobering subject because it can shows you how how the in a, in, a, in a way the war never ends, especially for for uh, people who 
were, you know, were, were trying to survive. And for a lot of people after the war is over, that like that trying to survive mentality becomes shameful and something they want to erase and pretend that, yeah. that they were never part of it. And even within the hellscape of Harrenhal, Arya is uniquely alienated because now everyone hates her for her part in Weasel Soup. Good wife Amabel grabs Arya out of nowhere, telling her she'll be next to be raped, gloating about torturing her. Amabel loved Hera and holds Arya responsible for Hera's death. She can't wait until Tywin returns to retake Harrenhal with his new army so she can take her vengeance on Arya. Everyone filters the twists and turns of the war through their personal desire to even the scales of justice. Arya did that with her three wishes, Amabel is doing it now, and the phrase will do it regarding Rob's marriage. We're seeing the cycle of violence play itself out, emblematic of the history of Harrenhal. As Amabel says, the castle brings them all down in the end. The sense of justice quickly fades as you realize that all you've done is keep the wheel turning. Even Arya's friends reject her now. Gendry holds her responsible for the heads just like Amabel. In his case, he mourns Lucan. Gendry told Arya in her previous chapter that he just wanted to keep his head down and survive, that choosing one side or the other was asking for death. Now he seems to have been proven right. Arya points out that Gendry hated Amory Lorch. Why not be glad? He's dead and gone. Gendry says that Amory was fighting for his lord, at least. The mummers are worse because they're turncloaks. I don't entirely agree. Roos's men, <laughs> the one who cut those heads off, they're also fighting for their lord. Moreover, Amory was on the same side as the bloody mummers for a while. He can't exactly claim distance from them. But I think that the important takeaway is that Gendry calls Biter your friend. That's your friend, Arya, not me. He feels personally betrayed by Arya. They are no longer both victims of these monsters. Instead, Arya has joined them, the Dreadfort sigil over her heart. Hot Pie feels the same way, treating Arya like a pariah in the kitchens. And yet, it's not as if Arya has been embraced by the new regime. Rorge stares at her with malign intent, and Elmar Frey treats her thoughtlessly, just ordering her about to help with what are really his duties as Roos's squire. It's just the noble way to just order people around to do what they're supposed to be doing as, as a nobleman, thinking that you're born with that that privilege. And speaking of Elmar Frey here, there's a reason why he occupies such a outsized role in this chapter. In her first encounter with Elmer Frey, Arya notes very briefly that Elmer was supposed to wed a princess. Who was his princess? For that, we turn back to Catelyn's ninth chapter in the Game of Thrones and recall what are the terms of the phrase allying with the Starks. And this is Catelyn speaking here. Also, if your sister Arya is returned to us safely, it is agreed that she will marry Lord Walder's youngest son, Elmar, when the two of them come of age. This is one of the best-known hashtag nice catches that people make when they realize that Arya is the princess that Elmer was supposed to marry, the one that he mm -hmm. references in this chapter. Of course, this takes on a much darker meaning later in this chapter when this gets brought up again, but we'll get there. Back in the Game of Thrones, Rob replied that Arya won't like that much, and sure enough, here we are with Arya not liking Elmer Frey all that much. Though, of course, that's mostly due to Elmer being an arrogant weakling. And I could just imagine how Arya would have perceived him if she knew she was going to have to marry this jabroni. She'd like him even less. And there's, a, there's an entire comedy storyline never to be written that follows <laughs> Arya being actually betrothed to Elmar Frey. But yeah, so she's isolated from her old friends. Her new quote-unquote friends don't actually like her. Even Jack and Hagar is gone. Arya keeps the coin he gave her, the image of a faceless man. It fits her story more than ever. She has another new identity. Harrenhal has switched sides, but what has really changed? 
Arya resists despair as best she can. She tells Gendry that it was only hot broth she brought. She never intended for things to end like this. You did that on purpose, Amabel yells at Arya, talking about spilled water, but also about a good wife Hara's death. She's wrong, Arya didn't do it on purpose. But how much does that matter? Doesn't doesn't she own the consequences of her three wishes, just as Rob owns the consequences of giving Roose his own command? Arya is left with the dead, in the worst of both worlds. She tried to restore her northern community, and now she's more alone than ever. You know, it's interesting. Back in Arya's ninth chapter, Arya framed her motivation in part, not in total, but in part as her duty to her house and family. They're Northmen, my father's men, and Rob's. Weasel Soup was, again, in part, a reflection of Arya's familial political loyalty, and it's completely understandable why she did what she did. The problem is that Arya did not reveal herself to be Arya of House Stark during mm. or after the liberation of Harrenhal. Instead, she tells Robert Glover that her name is Weasel, and then she later tells Roose Bolton at the end of Arya 9 that the name her mother gave her was Nan. In that context, what are the holdover survivors from the Lannister regime going to think about Weasel Soup? I think they're going to see her as similarly opt- opportunistic and bloodthirsty as the Bloody Bumbers. To them, she turned on Amory Lorch and the Lannisters not for family loyalty, but because she wanted to improve her station in Harrenhal. And hey, look at Arya. She's no longer working for the Understeward in the Wailing Tower. She's the cupbearer for Roose Bolton now, and she notes that her duties are much later than they were previously. That's why the survivors look at her like a monster and hate her. Not only did Arya get the people that they loved or liked killed, she's also personally benefiting from her evil. How galling it must be to goodwife Amabel that Arya got her lover Hara killed, and now she's Roose Bolton's cupbearer wearing the Bolton sigil. Kind of bad, right? In a way, how Arya appears to goodwife Amabel is how Varko Hote actually turned his cloak. He didn't do it for ideological reasons, but to be on the winning side and also to become Lord of Harrenhal. But again, Arya in A Clash of Kings Arya 10 appears similarly to a character we're about to be reintroduced to. Roose Bolton, who will actually betray his overlord master to another overlord master to gain greater station in Westeros by becoming Lord Paramount and Warden of the North. Everyone's fighting for advantage, and yeah, this chapter belongs to Roose Bolton, every bit as much as Arya. George gave us a teaser glimpse of one of his best villains at the end of Arya 9, when Roose showed up. Now he has been in charge of Harrenhal long enough to establish his own reputation, and we see it at work here, equal parts subtle and sinister. Roos gets an unforgettable reintroduction in this chapter, naked in bed, covered in leeches, making everyone come into the room to have this meeting with him under those circumstances. <laughs> it's a mixture of vulnerability and authority. Roos is forcing his subordinates into this intimate position with him, whether they like it or not. It sends the message that he has nothing to hide. Look, you can just you can see me naked in the in the middle of my leeching. <laughs> but his quiet words give so little away, and we know as rereaders that he's actually hiding quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it also feels the other dynamic that I saw here is that it feels like Roose Bolton is establishing dominance over who he considers to be his lessers, the fray in this circumstance. The forced intimacy is another way that Roose can make everyone feel uncomfortable because they have to be in a room with him in his naked, with his naked body with leeches sucking his blood. It's almost, in my opinion, like an unsolicited dick pic, except on a larger <laughs> scale where it's your boss and he likes to flay people. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable and weird and wrong feeling. Yet people, these frays have to listen to him and heed him because he's in charge. 
And that feeds into Roose Bolton using a, shall we say, unorthodox method of showing himself to be separate, unique, and in charge. Further, I think this is emblematic of Roose Bolton as a whole, who he is and how he grows in power. Tywin Lannister uses hard stares and few words to intimidate his bannermen. Ned Stark uses his long history of open-handedness and general nobility to win the support of his vassals. Rob Stark uses his marital prowess, marital prowess, <laughs> Rob Stark uses his martial prowess and his reputation as never losing a battle to win the loyalty of these vassals. But Roos isn't playing that game. He plays the Game of Thrones differently, coming at the politics sideways. That's a, that's a great way of putting at it. He's, he's coming at it sideways. Roos isn't even trying to live up to the image of the martial, impressive lord with his shining sword with its jeweled hilt. He has a different archetype in mind. He's embodying his own symbols, the flayed man and the leech. You could argue that Roos is making himself look weak. He's all feeble flesh like old Walder Frey. But if you think about it, Roos is letting everyone know that without those leeches, he'd be terrifying. He's a barely restrained beast. He speaks quietly so that other people have to lean in closely to hear. He speaks in bland, opaque riddles to make others reveal themselves. It's all a coldly calculated strategy, with the leeches symbolically sucking away his passions and leaving only the will to kill or be killed. Roos is therefore a different kind of villain than the Freys, despite their alliance. We see the Freys at work in this scene, too, and they're just like a bumbling hive mind. They have points to make, more on that in a second, but none of them make a strong individual impression. It's always one and then the other. They're like a self-loathing Greek chorus. I love that. Yeah. And, and kind of as an aside, I love the moment where Hostian Frey talks about how he doesn't wish to enjoy Tywin Lancer's hospitality again, like how he was enduring just unthinkable, horrific brutality when like just like he was a small folk prisoner at Heron Hall. And yet, in preparation for this episode, I happened to reread Arya's seventh chapter in A Clash of Kings before, and this was the horror of the Frey captivity at Heron Hall. Four brothers took their exercise together every day, fighting with staves and wooden shields in the flowstone yard. Three of them were Freys at the crossing, the fourth their bastard brother. They were only there a short time, though. One morning, two other brothers arrived under a peace banner with a chest of gold and ransomed them and ransomed them from the knights who'd captured them. Oh, man. Dude, are you fucking kidding me? That sounds like hell, Hostine Frey. How did you ever survive <laughs> being a prisoner of Tywin Lannister? I mean, as, as always, these early moments before the Red Wedding, George is driving at something with these small character beats here. It speaks to how the phrase over below any perceived slight or indignity. I think it's just the absolute worst thing they've ever, ever experienced. Exactly. The phrase are recognizably human in this scene. They're petty, they're pedantic, they're talking over each other. Roos cuts through them like a cold knife through hot butter. He is an alien presence in a room of squabbling humans. That dynamic fits perfectly with where they stand politically. The Freys are genuinely distraught, caught in a bad position with no good options. Roos, by contrast, has already lucked into a good option, which is why he can afford to operate at an icy remove while the Freys squabble. You can see why the Freys are so panicked. As Rob and the Blackfish will lay out to Edmure in A Storm of Swords, they were really counting on Stannis winning the Battle of Blackwater. Even taking Stannis's hard-headedness into account, making peace with the Baratheons would be much easier than making peace with the Lannisters, given how much blood has flown recently. But now Stannis has been crushed, and Tywin has risen to power. The same Tywin who held Harrenhal very recently, <laughs> and he is known for taking vengeance. 
He's got a massive army from the Reach at his back, and the Freys see a lose-lose scenario coming. Either they stay here, in which case they'll be besieged and starved out, or they leave to give battle to Tywin, in which case the odds are against them even if they join forces with Rob and Edmure. Rob's situation is getting grim, and that's without taking into account the fall of Winterfell, which makes him look weak, and the apparent death of his brothers, which puts the Stark line of succession in jeopardy. How quickly fortunes can change in war. It wasn't long ago that Rob won the Battle of Oxcross, and Edmure won the Battle of the Fords, the Stark cause was riding high, and the Lannisters were on the brink of destruction. Now everything is reversed. The Freys want to get out while they still have a chance. They make it plain. The war is lost, and Rob must surrender. Ah, Roose says, but who's going to tell Rob that? Who's going to convince the king, whose father was executed by the Lannisters, to bend the knee to them? It's easy to bluster in this room, which is suspiciously free of any diehard Stark loyalists. <laughs> oh, and why is that, by the way? <laughs> why did Roose only invite the phrase his in-laws? In truth, Roos has already committed himself to Tywin's plan, and Tywin's plan calls for Rob to suffer a worse fate than being convinced to bend the knee. That's why Roos says they won't be besieged. He knows Tywin is not going to march directly against Rob once more, but instead work through Roos as a proxy. That's also why Roos gives the order to send men to Duskendale. This is a huge red flag on reread, confirming that Roos has already sold Rob out. Roos is lying that these orders come from Rob. He will tell Rob in A Storm of Swords that Robert Glover and Helmand Tallhart acted of their own accord. As we'll see in A Storm of Swords, Duskendale is a trap. Gregor Clegane cuts off their retreat, he kills Helmand Tallhart personally, and they wipe out most of the Northmen. Why is this significant? Because these are men unlikely to follow Roos's lead at the Red Wedding. Sam goes for those killed at the Ruby Ford when Roos leaves them behind for Gregor to attack. If those men survived, Stark loyalists would have a numerical edge at the Twins. Now they don't, especially after the phrase joined with Tywin and Roos. Clearly, Roos knew from Tywin that Gregor would be present at Duskendale, so it's a chilling deal he has cut. He is betraying his own countrymen by the thousands. That deal is only possible because Roos took Harrenhal, acquiring control of his own communications, allowing for messages to and from Tywin. And if you blink, you might miss it. But I think we do see one of Tywin's birds arrive at Harrenhal in the very next scene from this chapter. As Arya crossed the yards of the bathhouse, she spied a raven circling down toward the rookery and wondered where it had come from and what message it carried. Might be it's from Rob, come to say it wasn't true about Bran Rickon. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think this is from, from Rob and any information about Bran Rickon, furthermore. Later, Arya is going to prepare papers, quill and ink for Roose Bolton. Papers, quill, and ink that Roose Bolton will use to negotiate with Tywin Lannister to leverage his betrayal of the Starks for a greater position in the North. I think that ultimately is the bitterest of ironies of Arya's role in liberating Harrenhal. Uh -huh. She inadvertently created the circumstances by which Tywin's ravens could actually reach Roose Bolton. As we learn from later chapters, birds cannot fly from castle to an army camp. Birds have to fly from castle to castle, and only one bird in 100, as Stannis will say in, in Theon's Winds Winter Sample chapter, can fly to multiple castles at the same time. But now those birds are coming and going, and Arya is inadvertently, and 
I'm not blaming her for this, but she is inadvertently assisting with the planning for the Red Wedding. The Freys have not committed themselves to anything yet. Roos has, which is why he oh-so-symbolically decides to go hunting for wolves. As he tells Kyburn, one king may be terrible, but four? Four means men like Roos can play one side against the other to their own advantage. So Roos fits perfectly into the rogues gallery of Harrenhal. He could be like Danau Lothstan bathing in blood. Uh, there's like uh, Gargan the Guest, Gargan Coharis, who once ruled Harrenhal, and he made use of the Lord's right to the first night where you go around to weddings and demand that you get to sleep with the bride first. And we know from A Dance with Dragons that Roos also made use of that practice. And you can tell how much fun George is having writing Roos as a character in this chapter. His sardonic asides, his terrible smiles. It's just pure supervillain energy, and I love it. I, I love it, too. It's, it's hard not to, maybe love's the wrong word, really enjoy being in the presence of Roos Bolton when he's on page. And having coming off our most recent Fever Dream Patreon episode, which prominently features Damon Julian, you can't help but see the same sort of creative energy George had when writing these supervillains. The smiles, the sophisticated seeming manners, the cold brutality, it's all there. But Damon Julian needed Sour Billy Tipton to do the tasks beneath him, the stuff in the daylight. Is Kyburn occupying a similar character archetype here, sending and receiving messages from the Red Keep? Now, I, I do as a practice, try to shy away from the tinfoil side of things. But you had brought up the wolf hunt as a metaphor from earlier, and I wonder if Roos and Kyburn were kind of speaking in code when Arya's in that scene with them, hmm. with Roos tiring of the Starks and Kyburn cautioning Roos that it might not be safe to go after the Starks. E even if it's not code, it's it's potent metaphor for what Roos will do in hunting Starks and how that will ultimately prove his undoing come the winds of winter. Regardless, I also really loved your point from earlier that Roos is using his this strategy session as a sensing session for the phrase. It's like he's feeling them out to see if they might be open to betrayal, but they haven't totally committed to betraying Rob yet. They know they want to be on the winning side, which of course is an echo of the late Lord Frey showing up at the Trident after the battle was decided and Hoster Frey, Hoster Frey, and Hoster Tully wondering which side he planned to be fighting on when he arrived. But the Freys aren't there yet as they don't have a good reason in their own minds to openly betray Rob Stark. That reason, unfortunately, will arrive towards the end of this chapter. Here it almost seems like Tywin and Roos are exchanging birds back and forth, and Roos Bolton has the phrase in this chamber because Tywin and Roos had the idea of making the phrase a part of their betrayal. Roos Bolton or Tywin Lannister thought maybe the phrase might be amenable to being cut into their deal, and here, the phrase seemed quite amenable. That speaks to something else, I think. If Rob Stark never dishonored the phrase, in quotation marks, by marrying Jane Westerling, would the phrase have gone ahead with the Red Wedding anyways? It's clear here that the phrase wanted Rob to surrender to bend the knee, but would Rob have actually surrendered to the Lannisters even with Stannis losing on the Blackwater? As we'll find out in the Black, as we'll find out in A Storm of Swords, Rob has no plans to surrender. He's going to keep fighting, if only to reclaim the North from the Ironborn. So the sense I get from these dozen or so phrases, yeah, they probably would have still done the Red Wedding if Rob refused to give up his fight. The dishonoring then serves as a pretext to something they would have done anyways, to avoid, of course, being on the losing side. I think I, I partially agree. I think it's it's definitely clear the phrase are spooked by this, and it definitely stands out that they're the only ones in the room, that Roos feels comfortable talking to them and to no one else. And mm. Walter Frey is already infamous for, for picking whatever side he's going to think is the winning side. But I don't... I, I don't know why George would bother to have Rob break the marriage pact if that wasn't, if that didn't actually mean anything. You know what I mean? If that sure. wasn't the reason the phrase jumped ship, why even, why even write it? Why not just have the phrase betray him because they're spooked? I think, 
I th- especially since Rob was heading back to the north, I think if Rob had not broken the marriage pact, I think what the phrase would likely have done is let him go north and then try to cut a deal with the Lannisters when he was gone. I That's think there's fair. a per- there's a personal escalation of vengeance that I only think comes into play when the marriage contract is broken. Also because the Freys are pariahs now in Westeros because of what hmm. they did with Rob, and that's got that's that's quite a move to take on. So I think they were definitely already looking for a way out of the cause. But you know, George said that they would have disentangled themselves. I think eventually, but I think there's there's a there's a, a fair jump between that and outright uh, wiping out thousands of dudes. And I think that is totally that fair. that does I think. Take take the personal sting of the, of, of the marriage arc, of the of the marriage pact. That is to say. So where is mm-hmm. Arya herself in all of this? As I said earlier, George has to wrap up her character arc in this book, as well as trace the fallout from the capture of Harrenhal and the Battle of Blackwater. Arya, as she says, feels more sad than angry. All the furious will to power represented by Jockin's three wishes vanished when he did. He gave her mastery over death. She was the ghost of Harrenhal. Now she can only wonder if the dead speak a language that she can't hear. Like you said earlier, her fortunes have improved, strictly speaking, but that brings her no relief. She could have Amabel killed for threatening her, she thinks. It's an empty prospect. Violence is no longer cathartic for her. This sense of grief, Hall as a perpetually refilled graveyard, only becomes harder to bear when Arya hears that Bran and Rickon are dead. The dramatic irony is perfect. We want to reach into the story to comfort Arya, to tell her that Theon is lying and her brothers live, but we can't. Arya can't even react to the news, lest she give her identity away. She has to stand there like a statue as the pain devastates her inside. She doesn't even get the dignity of her own grief. She has lost her family again, and not for the last time. Her other brother, Rob, is the shining Stark standard in her head. He'll beat the Lannisters, she thinks to herself, and he wouldn't let anyone kill Bran and Rickon. But now she has to reckon with powerlessness. Rob is hundreds of miles away, it doesn't matter what he would do. And Bran and Rickon were defenseless. These are the cruel, these are the cruel realities of war. The news reawakens Arya's desire for fire and blood. She is glad to hear Roose order the castle of Derry sacked and burned. After all, that's where Micah died, and where both Stark sisters lost their wolves. And now that sense of grief is fresh again because of Bran and Rickon. Yeah, but it's also the castle which has changed hands three times before Robot and Helmon take the castle. Mm-hmm. Derry to Lannister, Lannister to Derry, Derry back to Lannister, and then of course now here back to the, the Northmen. And recall what happened the last time when the castle was taken as Brendan Tully recounted to Catelyn in her first A Clash of Kings chapter. Derry men recaptured their lord's keep but held it less than a fortnight before Gregor Clegane descended upon them and put the whole garrison to the sword, even their lord. And now it's been taken again and the garrison is all going to be executed by the good guys of A Song of Ice and Fire. Castle Derry and Harrenhal reflect two themes I think that George is repeatedly punching at his readers here in this chapter. Stark, Tully or Lannister banners don't differentiate, don't differentiate good or evil. It's the men underneath those banners, the ones given the orders that make that distinction. And secondly, that war makes beasts of us all. Mm, well said. It's those, those, that sedimentary layer of alienation and violence that just builds on you. It deserves to burn. That's what Arya thinks about Derry. Sansa thought the same thing about the Sept of Baelor, where their father was executed when Stannis was coming with his fiery banner. She's like, good, I hope he burns it all down. It's the need to give our sorrow structure and meaning, to see our grief reflected on the landscape, 
that ends up creating more death, more sorrow, more grief, and around we go. What else is Arya supposed to feel? Who else is she supposed to be? She's been wearing a mask for so long. Is this my home now, she wonders? Arya is like an undercover agent who's been working too long and she doesn't even know who her true self is anymore. (laughs) She wants Derry to burn to be rid of her grief, but Winterfell, the source of her love, seems to be lost to her too. And with it her name, Arya of House Stark. Is she condemned to be Nan of Harrenhal forever? No family? No home? George gives us this paragraph of Arya hard at work where she's putting everything away, putting everything away, cleaning things around Roose Bolton's solar. It's like she's trying to accept this life, trying to feel, oh, can, hmm. can I just be this person now? Then she spots a familiar word on a map. River Run. Her grandfather's castle. She's a Tully, as well as a Stark, after all. So River Run now replaces Winterfell as Arya's destination. She will spend all of the next book trying and failing to get there. This newfound inspiration leads her to another symbol of home, Heron Hall's Godswood, the one place in the castle Arya can be alone, and so be herself. Here she can practice the moves Sirio taught her. Here she can recite her kill list, a keystone of her identity, memory filtered through vengeance. As she says their names, she affirms her own, because Arya Stark is the person who wants these other people dead. Sunlight and shadow come together, as George writes it. She prays to the old gods with Jochen Hagar's words. And the old gods give answer. First with the howl of a wolf, and then the ghostly voice of her father, as if Arya is Hamlet facing her own indecision. It's not clear whether this is a genuinely magical moment or a purely psychological one. Arya feeling dizzy? That could point in either direction. Regardless of where Ned's voice is coming from, the tree or Arya's mind, its message is clear. You will wither and die on your own. Only the family, the pack, survives winter. The war has alienated Arya from herself, and she says, I'm not even me now. The pack has been scattered to the winds. How can she find her way home? Ned's ghost tells Arya that she carries Winterfell with her, everywhere she goes, in her blood just like she carries him with her, the memory of love. She must live up to the pack from afar, being, as she says, as brave as Rob. As Ned told Bran, it is only when you are afraid that your courage is truly tested. Arya must face her fears in order to grow up. And so Arya breaks her wooden sword. She is a direwolf and done with wooden teeth. She must put aside childish things to forge her adult identity. Yeah, and your point about whether it's Ned's voice in the wordwood or a psychological projection by Arya is very much George hitting his sweet spot of ambiguity, building towards one of my favorite character moments in the series. And though I love every scene with Bruce Bolton in it, this is the scene that makes this chapter my, my favorite Arya chapter in A Clash of Kings, because it, it brings all of the character beats in Arya's arc in this book together. Mm-hmm. She's been hearing the calling of the wolf since her earliest chapters. Recall in Arya 3 how she even meets a wolf in the woods. Then in Arya 4, the howling of wolves and probably Arya's warging of Nymeria wakes her and warns her that Amory Lorch is approaching the Holdfast. Then from Arya 6 to 8, she loses her wolfish identity, is unable to hear the wolves, and becomes a mouse and then a ghost under the boot of the Lannisters. Here, she's reclaiming her wolfish-slash-stark identity and is done playing with wooden teeth and toys. 
In a, in a way, this kind of reminds me of what Catelyn told Rob back in A Game of Thrones. Be certain, Catelyn told her son, or go home and take up that wooden sword again. It's time to put away childish, childish things and take up steel again. Time to stop being a kid and be an adult. And yet, this moment is fraught with the bitter as well as the sweet. Arya's 10 and has decided to become an adult here. She's leaving childhood behind while she's still a child. That's bittersweet as Arya is crossing the threshold of childhood to adulthood. The innocence of childhood fades and the reality of adulthood arises. What makes it bitter is war has made her adult far before her time. But there's even more bittersweet found in Arya becoming a wolf again. We've been having an interesting conversation in the Not A Slack recently about the titles of the books and how they interact with the themes of the books and how George might have written the, the titles differently. And we were talking about the now abandoned title of George's final book in the series, A Time for Wolves. Mm-hmm. That title invokes the sweet part of the Starks returning to the world after having all been, been all but extinguished from it in the main books. So the Starks will ultimately triumph, George is proclaiming, but is A Time for Wolves a good thing? I mean, we're going to see later on in, in, in Arya's arc how that might not be a good thing. Deciding to shed her mouse and ghost identities to become a wolf and her desire to join her pack, her family, those are good things. And yet wolves by their nature are dangerous predators and they are man-eaters when necessity forces them to do so. Arya's embrace of her wolfish identity will coincide nicely with her growing power to warg Nymeria. Her very next chapter, her first chapter in A Storm of Swords, closes with Arya warging Nymeria and slaughtering the bloody mumbers, pursuing her Gendry and Hot Pie. That seems like a good thing. And yet, in A Dance with Dragons, Arya wargs Nymeria again as her and her pack kill a shepherd, his dogs, and his flock. All of that reminds me of a line from one of my favorite movies, Sicario, the closing lines, in fact. You will not survive here. You are not a wolf, and this is the land of wolves now. George wants us to feel that fuck yeah moment when Arya declares that she's done with wooden teeth and also to interweave a gray ambiguity to that whole moment. It's among George's best character work, but to really explore this dynamic in depth in A Storm of Swords, Arya has to not be here. Here being, of course, Harrenhal. Oh, that, that was great, man. I think you really captured exactly the kind of the bittersweet threshold Arya is on. And in order to reclaim herself, yeah, Arya has to escape Harrenhal. Not only because her family waits at Riverrun, but because Roos is moving on. I love the dialogue scene in which Roos confirms that he plans to give both Harrenhal and Arya over to the Bloody Mummers when he marches back north. It communicates both Roos's cruelty and Arya's courage as the two probe each other. Arya has to overcome her fears to speak up at all. She wants to know if Roos will take her with him. If so, she doesn't have to escape. Roos would inadvertently deliver her into her mother's arms. But Roos won't be doing that. He doesn't care what happens to Nan any more than he cared what happened to Lucan or Hera or Pia. And it's also Roos Bolton not caring what happens to his brand new disposable acid, the Bloody Mummers, just the Westeros' most disposable asset that could possibly exist. I mean, no one in Westeros or even this Song of Ice and fandom is going to shed a tear that these bumblefuck monsters are about to get got here. And yet, Roose Bolton gifting Harrenhal to Vargohot reads similarly to Euron Greyjoy's poison gifts that he doles out to Victarion's mm-hmm. captains mm-hmm. in A Feast for Crows and also to Victarion himself. It speaks to how Roose will shed every human being who stands in his way to his rise to the top, from the lowest small folk to a sellsword company to the King of the North. As Arya says, Roos reacts to her speaking up as though his dinner is talking back to him. That's how Roos sees the small folk, as animals, as prey. It never occurred to him that his cupbearer might want to know what's going to happen to her, 
let alone that she would have the nerve to ask him. It's pure dehumanization. And you can imagine what it must be like for Roos's servants at the Dread Fort, taught every day, all their life, that they don't matter. Both what Roos says, I'm leaving you to the bloody mummers, and how he says it, like he'll brutalize her for asking, get across the same message. Arya can't stay here, as things get even worse. As she leaves Roos's chambers, the guards tell her there's a storm coming. A storm of swords, it's the plot of the next book! <laughs> the dark wind has brought dark wings with dark words. Arya sees the message arrive and hears the phrase fighting. Elmar says they've been dishonored and he has to marry someone else. As rereaders, we know the score here. The phrase got word that Rob married Jane Westerling. George times this out carefully. The phrase were already spooked, but their goal was to convince Rob to bend the knee. Only now does the plan change to outright betrayal and murder. They cross the line to join Roos. As you were saying, there is a terrific irony here in that neither Elmar nor Arya realize that they're betrothed to each other, and so they're talking not just to each other, but about each other. So when Arya <laughs> says she hopes his princess dies, she's talking about herself. She's wishing death upon herself without knowing it. She's lashing out in response to Elmar expressing the same bigotry as Roos. We are worth more than you. No one cares if a serving girl's brothers die, says Elmar. Nan doesn't matter. Only Arya does. By the same token, no one up north would care that the Miller's boys died. All that they care about is that if they think Bran and Rickon died. Mm -hmm. By wishing death upon Elmar's princess, Arya is shedding the very stark identity she's seeking to reclaim. But she's doing so in a way that demonstrates she's not more important than anyone else just for being a Stark. Arya wants to get home because she loves her family. She doesn't want to get home to be a princess. That's not what she's interested in. So she is, she's kind of symbolically killing that part of herself, if that makes sense. That's a great point. And you can read this line as similar to Arya's feelings about Derry, as you put so well earlier. Like Derry burning mm -hmm. as a means of washing away her grief over Winterfell. She's, with, she's wishing death on Elmer's princess to wash the grief of her dead brothers away. How ironic that both Arya is the princess in question and that Bran and Rickon are also very much alive at this point. I know. There's so many levels of irony here. So many things that the characters know and don't know that we don't know as first-time readers. And there's another irony in that Arya has to use her new face as Roose Bolton's cupbearer to get the job done, to get away from Roose Bolton. <laughs> she has to use the info she obtained from Roose to convince Gendry and Hot Pie to leave with her. The bloody members are going to take over. You got to come with me. And she has to use her status in order to obtain horses and to get through the gate. At every turn, her self-actualization is tied to violence. She knows they're going to kill the stable boy for helping her. She doesn't directly kill this one, like she did at King's Landing, but he will die because of her actions all the same. Arya does directly kill the guard at the gate. This is a significant moment in her story, as she crosses the threshold in more ways than one. Arya killed the stable boy in King's Landing and the Lannister soldiers at that village by the god's eye out of self-defense. She killed through Jock and Hagar indirectly, out of a sense of justice. But this? This is premeditated killing of a man who is not himself shown to be directly guilty of any particular crime. Arya is not killing him out of bloodlust, of course. She's trying to get away from violent, powerful people who probably would eventually hurt her. But she is a different person because of this decision, and that's why George takes his time building up to it. It's no coincidence that Arya uses Jockin's coin to fool the guard, nor that she whispers Valar Mogulis as he dies. This is the product of his tutelage. She didn't go with the assassin when he left, but he made her more like him. 
it's also no coincidence why Arya 10 occurs right after Danny's fifth chapter and the assassination attempt on Danny. There, the sorrowful man told Danny, I am so sorry, as she opens the box with a manacore within. Within, an ancient order of assassins telling the person that they try to kill or succeed in killing the mantra of their order is good structure. Even as this, as a conclusion of Arya 10 fucking slaps and the sorrowful man attempt feels like a dud. But that coin that Arya holds, she describes it earlier in this chapter as having queer writing on one side of it and a, quote, face with all its features rubbed off on the other. Of course, the features aren't actually rubbed off. The face doesn't have any features at all. But in another sense, the features of the person who becomes a faceless man are rubbed off. As Arya will learn to Feast for Crows, she must forget Arya Stark to become no one. Her stark, wolfish identity she decides to fully reclaim at chapter's end must be rubbed off in order mm. for her to become a faceless man. That becomes the feature of Arya's story as a faceless man, whether she's Arya or no one. That's the character dynamic that is inherent in Feast, Dance, and of course, The Winds of Winter. But the origins of that story are found here in Harrenhal, with her earlier thoughts about whether she was to remain Nan or stay at Harrenhal forever, or to rejoin her pack. I totally agree. Jochen provoked this question, are you to stay loyal to the pack that you don't have anymore, or to leave the pain behind, become nothing? And Harrenhal offers the same question. Harrenhal mm -hmm. is a black hole of evil, corrupting everyone in their pursuit of power, whether political, magical, or both. Arya was beaten down by that power. Then she reveled in claiming part of it for herself. Now she only leaves the castle by feeding it more blood. So, does she really escape Harrenhal? Does anyone? It remakes her in its image, as a ghost. Arya is walking away from childhood, as with her wooden sword. As with the cat, she refuses to chase like she did in the good old days. This chapter, as you were saying, brings all of Arya's selves together. She prays to the old gods with Jokin's words. She uses his coin to rejoin the pack. She holds on to some of Sirio's lessons and discards some others. And that's how <laughs> maturation works. Arya is wandering literally the Tower of Ghosts, trying to put her ghosts to rest. She says she feels Yor and she feels Jon Snow with her. Hot Pie's shock when she kills the guard speaks to the weight of this moment. But as Arya says to the reader as much as Hot Pie, what did you think she was going to do? What did you think she was sharpening her knife for? How else did you think she was going to get out of here? She has to get back to her Stark self somehow, and her Stark self is now intimately tied to death. She hears wolves calling her, and she must kill a Northman in order to join them. The pack survives by hunting, as you were saying earlier, and all Arya can hope is that the rain, the storm of swords, will wash her clean. And so sadly, it's not necessarily going to actually wash her clean. Her journey mm -hmm. in Storm of Swords is one of ultimately a failure and of her failure to rejoin her pack and her desire to leave it all behind in, in Westeros. I think it's interesting that this Arya chapter concludes with her doing a, an act of premeditated murder, killing. It's kind of hard to determine which one, which, which is which at this point. In A Game of Thrones, Arya did kill someone else, but it was almost accidental when she killed the stable boy who was trying to seize her. She attempted to escape from the Red Keep. Here, she's escaping Harrenhal and is doing so deliberately. And I think that ramps up as we go forward to A Storm of Swords, where she has that amazing, horrific scene at the end of the crossroads, mm -hmm. killing, killing the tickler and shouting at him, how many, how many, how many, how many, how many? And that's just so wonderfully done how George just elevates the stakes for Arya and also elevates the level of violence. And we get into A Feast for Crows and she learns to kind of 
curtail, not curtail. She learns to train her killer instinct that she's developed here at Harrenhal and in King's Landing in a way that makes her all the more dangerous and lethal as we go forward into the books. And then, of course, she's killing Wrath the Sweetling in her Mercy chapter in The Winds of Winter. And more and more deaths are going to be coming in Arya Stark's arc going forward, the route of Song of Ice and Fire. So, I think that about wraps us up for our depth portion on A Clash of Kings, Arya 10. To transition to foreshadowing and groundwork, given, given the context of Season 8, this, this line from the chapter, If I had wings, I could fly back to Winterfell and see for myself, and if it was true, and if it was true, I'd just fly away, fly up past the moon and the shining stars and see all the things in old Nan's stories, dragons and sea monsters and the Titan of Bravos, and maybe I wouldn't ever fly back unless I wanted to. To me, that line now, again with season eight in context, seems like foreshadowing both for Arya's Bravosi arc as well as her endgame in the series. Because, of course, at the end of season eight, the endpoint for Arya Stark is her sailing away Nymeria style from Westeros and trying to bring back the horizon, to use a, a line from the award-winning Pirates of the Caribbean movie that came out in 2003. I think that is, as we've said before, probably where Arya's storyline is, is going to be heading in the books as well. And I agree. I, I I like what you said there about it both being about Bravos and her endgame because Bravos is the temptation to a different, very different kind of endgame to be a faceless man to abandon House Stark. So Arya is feeling tempted to run away from her family, run away from grief, run away from all of that to Bravos, and she will do that. But then she will come back only to leave again. And I think that is a perfect, hmm. bittersweet ending because that's how, again, getting old works. That's how maturation works. You leave home and you can come back, but it's not the same place it was. And you have to accept that and accept that you will you will always be moving on in your path in life and that you never get to go back to childhood. And I think that's emotionally, I think that's where George wants to leave us with Arya. Yeah, agreed. Arya, so Arya was lying in this chapter to Gendry about Vargo Hote cutting off everyone's limbs. She was just saying it to get him moving. But she doesn't know how right she's going to turn out to be. A cook lets in Gregor as revenge for losing his foot, and then Gregor wipes everyone out. So Arya saved Gendry and Hot Pie after all. That's just the nature of Harrenhal. It keeps getting bloodier. And that's as we were saying, there's so many ironies in this chapter. Arya doesn't even know what she's saving her friends from. And if I'm not mistaken, when we get to Jamie's chapter in A Feast for Crows, returns to Harrenhal, the only people that are still alive are Paya and like a groom or someone like that. It's like just two yeah, people. They left a couple people alive, but otherwise, yeah, if Gendry and Hot Pie had still been there, they would be dead meat. And then if I'm also not mistaken, too, when we learn about Gregor retaking the castle, isn't the first thing that we learn is that he was fed his left foot by Gregor Clegane? Am I, am I Yeah, Var- Vargo was fed his limbs. Yep, yep. Yep. Yeah, just, Quite I mean, fate. like... I'm not exactly, I'm not sad that they all died or most of them have died and the others are going to die in the winds of winter, but that seems like a really ridiculously um, awful way to, to go about, to go out in, in this world. Not that it's, anyone- It's not, Baroque not far- and over the top for sure. That's Harrenhal. You got to top the guy who came before you, you know, and then the guy after you has got to top you. That's how it works. Yeah. So sad, but not really. So finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, George reuses the someone is dead is now talking through a werewood again in Theon's penultimate chapter in The Dance with Dragons. When Theon thinks he sees Bran's face in the werewood and hears his voice, except this time, this is actually magical. Also, Bran is not actually dead, as we find out, you know, because he didn't die at, at Winterfell. And that is almost certainly Bran talking through the werewood to Theon from Bloodraven's cave. And I think it's one of those things that I'm really curious to see the flip side, whether we're going to get a Bran wins a winter chapter where he's speaking through the werewood or we get Bran remembering talking with Theon through the werewood here. But again, it's something that George reuses and I think he uses it to excellent effect in, the, in A Dance with Dragons. 
Agreed. Oftentimes, the more kind of ambiguous versions of these tropes, you get like the real deal, so to speak, with Bran or Danny. Like they get the the legit ones. It reminds me of Davos in his first chapter in Storm, where he has yeah. what seems to be a conversation with the mother, but is really probably just Davos dealing with grief and deprivation <laughs> after the battle. I think for me, the the giveaway here is that like Ned does not give Arya any new information. Like there's nothing in here that Arya wouldn't be able to imagine Ned saying. Mm-hmm. So I, I I would come down on this as Arya really, really wanting to hear something and part of her brain yeah. just telling her. Because that's also, once more, kind of what growing up feels like sometimes. It feels like there's this other person in your head, like an adult version of you who is telling you things. That's what in the in the in the book version of The Shining, the the kid Tony who's talking to the kid Danny the whole time is actually him. It's Anthony's his middle name and it's just an older version of him. So hmm. I think I think there's there's something to that going on. And Bran kind of makes that literal because he can literally come back and talk to you. <laughs> but I think also that's just that's you know that's how life works to a certain extent. Agreed. So moving on into theory and discussion, there is an interesting little moment in this chapter when Arya comes into Roose Bolton's chambers and he is reading some mysterious old book. And then when she comes in, he puts it in the flames and goes whoosh and he sees that the fire is reflected in his eyes and it's very spooky. So I was I was always kind of curious and I want to talk about what do, what do we think might have been in that, that book Roose burned? So I'm, I'm sure there's some fascinating uncovered nugget <laughs> of what George has said about this, right? Right, George has confirmed this is very important, right, Jeff? <laughs> well, I... No, <laughs> but that's okay. No. I mean, um, I mean uh, you know, for a really long time, there's been a lot of debate. Like, what, what was what was in the book? What was the book that Bruce Bolton burned? Was it um, someone had I, I, re- I read about this in, from like a 2008 from the Westeros.org forum where someone's like, was that the book that John Aaron and Ned Stark read <laughs> about <laughs> the <laughs> lineage of the Lannisters and the Baratheons? Was he like flipping through the book as well and going through and? Then he realized, oh my God, like Stannis' letter is correct, but I can't let that information get out or else this entire <laughs> betrayal that I've been planning is is and gone. It's, it's destroyed. I, I can't do it. I just can't do it. But um, as it turns out, so this is a, <laughs> uh, or it could be something, it could be fire, it could be the winds of winter, who knows? Um, but but right. as it actually turns out, yeah, right, it's the winds of winter. God, it's, it's George's work before he decided to... Anyways, we'll, we'll talk about that another time after the book comes out. Um, as, as it turns out, so this comes from Elio Garcia Jr., who is, of course, George's co-writer for The World of Ice and Fire. Um, when the um, when, when George read The the Wayward Bride in, in A Dance with Dragons as a, as a sample in 2008, there was a lot of discussion about Roose Bolton, again, because the Boltons obviously come up and the Starks and, and Stannis as well. And Elio Garcia was asked, or someone asked, like, hey, what was in that book? You know, and it was like batting back and forth, these theories. And Elio says, George R. R. Martin has been asked about this in the past. And as, as I recall, his answer was that it was just a book and the scene was there to show that the sort of man Bruce Bolton was. If something wasn't useful to him, he'd be willing to destroy it just to deny it to anyone else, even if it was an old or rare or valuable. So... To me, like what was actually in the book is not important, seems to be the information that is being conveyed here. It's actually the act itself, which is important. Roose Bolton burning the book was showing that Roos just was not willing to let anyone else read something else or, or that, that he had read. He wanted to be the one person with that information and knowledge. And, you know, coming off of uh, our, our analyses on, on Danny, we, we talked a lot about how how George R. R. Martin might have been basing Karth on you know, Hollywood, we have this whole thing of all of this, mm-hmm. all of George's intellectual property being 
bought up by people. There's a, there's been a lot of stories recently about one of his books. I want to say it's, um, gosh, The Skin Trade, I believe, or, or another of his, of his books that has been optioned by Hollywood, but has been locked away and has never going to be shown on, on the silver, on the silver or the small screen. I do whatever that's like George, maybe like just kind of like bitterly reflecting on his Hollywood experience of like selling all of his intellectual property to Hollywood studios and never having it seen the light of day. They're almost like burning his books, so to speak. But that could be that could be me really interpolating George's I like here. But that. I think it, it does I think it fits the type. So let me let me let me pose the question a different way to you. What book would you think would be so valuable that Roosbone would have to burn in? Well I know I like I like this little moment just because it is it does speak to how much we project into the story that, you know, it, it's it's such a spooky little scene. It must mean something, right? But actually what it means <laughs> is something quite banal that shows that Roos like, Roos would see no reason not to burn the book. He's like, well, I've gained what I can from it. Time to throw it out. The same way, like, if you would, you know, squeeze juice from an orange and you just throw it out, throw it out the remains. Mm-hmm. And that is, it's that it speaks to how he handles Hall and everything else. He's always cutting people off from behind and, and looking for an angle. But I like, um, I like imagining that that book is about the curse of Hall and that this is Roos mm-hmm. realizing what he's done. Like, he's reading this book and realizing, oh, I'm screwed, aren't I? And then him going, <laughs> oh, well. And like throwing the book into the fire. Because then you see him in dance and he's like, yeah, I'm probably going to die soon. La, 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 la. Anywho. Because <laughs> he's already done the Red Wedding and that's already his big his big thing in life. So he's done. Mm-hmm. But I, I, again, I don't, I don't think it's true because obviously Elio said, you know, that it's a very sensible answer. It just shows how what kind of dude Roos is. But I like thinking about it's about the curse because that, that is how I think Roos would react to that news. He would go, well, something was going to get me. <laughs> may as may as well burn it for fuel. You know that is Roos has a very uh, he has a very lackadaisical, which is you know a lackadaisical attitude, which is what makes him interesting. He's this mix of terrifying and oddly laid back, so you never know what he's going to do. And and I think that that's great about about Roosbow, which makes him just a, a unique and interesting supervillain in, in the series. You know, he's not Tywin Lannister. Tywin Lannister very clearly fits into the authoritarian person who does a lot of bad things and is very like ordered about it and but Bruce is just so freaking weird and you know as much as I think like uh, Michael McCalladin, I think this is actual how you pronounce his name. He's a Northern Irish actor who plays uh, Roose Bolton, or maybe he's English, uh, in the show. Like he does a really good job of playing Roose Bolton. We don't get that same weirdness about Roose Bolton mm. in, the, in the TV series as we get in the books. And this is just like Roose Bolton just being like fucking weird. And yeah. Roose Bolton is fucking weird is like a really interesting dynamic villain that I think doesn't get, often get captured in a lot of uh he's like i think steven Owell, i was reading as uh, re9 compared him to a bond villain he's yeah super like a bond but this is like bond villain stuff right right Burning the they have their, their little weird idiosyncrasies that just exist to be weird idiosyncrasies and that's yeah that's that's a, it's it's a it's important to be reminded that like not even though i think george is a very dense thinker i think in not every not every inch of a book not every inch of a book is stamped with meaning and not everything has two layers and, and sometimes Something creepy really is just supposed to be something creepy, and Roos especially is. I think, uh, as I've, I think I said before, Roos really doesn't make much sense at all, and I think that's what makes him fast. <laughs> that's what makes him fascinating as a character. Mm-hmm. And I think to 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 have a character who's well written and enjoyable, but whose motivations are really inscrutable if you stop to try to unravel them. I think that's that can be a fun kind of villain, and like yeah, yeah also like a Bond villain who just does weird things because they're weird. Nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, he just needs like a cat to be petting. Like when we get to like, exactly, he's not gonna be in the winds. Yeah, something exactly. Something weird. That that cat wouldn't last long though. I feel bad for that no. cat. 
pull, no, pull back to like a pile of cat skeletons right behind Roos. <laughs> that was Fluffy 1 through 509. This is Fluffy 510. He won't make the same mistakes, will he, Fluffy 510? No, he won't. That, that would be Roos. You're shitting in the kitty in the kitty box this time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right there. Nowhere else. Yes, Fluffy. Well, that is a way to conclude this analysis <laughs> of the Clash of Kings Aria 10. Roos Bolton and his collection of cat skeletons. Wow. Yeah, we go we go places in this in the Notcast podcast. Um yeah, so I mean that's that's it for Arya Stark in, in a Clash of Kings. It's another point of view character down for for a song, for a mm-hmm. Clash of Kings. We just have a few more to go and then we're we're done with this book. So as always, thank you so much for listening to us. And if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify. And of course, if you are not subscribed to us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button if you're watching us a live stream. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or porkquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Maribald the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Lulin the Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Banderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon Marifal, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, <laughs> Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce cri- Protector of Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things, and Sir Lady Jordan, Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, so very, very much for your support. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 8, Sansa's final chapter, as Tywin and the Tyrells officially take over King's Landing. Oh, the glory that shall await this event. A very a very smooth transition. Yeah, a, yeah. Horse, a horse takes a shit in front of the throne. But other than that, very smooth transition. A bunch of guys get murdered, too, if I'm not mistaken. That also happens. In the back, towards the back. Afterwards. Right. Yeah, off, hush off. Off stage. Exactly. Yeah. We don't speak of such things. Totally kosher. So, thank you so much for listening. Had a lot of fun doing this episode with you all. And thank you so much for your support to our patrons. We'll see you all next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 